Well, what an exciting thing to pray about being a part of being a world Christian and some tangible opportunities that you can be listening to God about and responding to using your connection card. We're in a series that is about good news in difficult and daunting times. And we're learning from Jesus, the teacher. So we're going to continue the series that we have been in. And uh, I'm going to ask you to turn with me again to Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 5. So please open your Bibles and follow along the very words of Jesus that we are, we are looking at today and, and continuing in this series. We're in Matthew, Chapter 5. And in a moment, we will be reading from verses 31 through 48. Recently, I noticed that on one of the uh, network uh, stations, the movie Saving Private Ryan was on. How many of you saw that movie? I think that is one of the most powerful and intense movies that I've ever seen. And I am very glad I saw it once. I do not particularly want to see it again, especially the first 20, 25 minutes. Very intense. The veterans who saw that from the Second World War were many visibly shaken and said it was one of the most accurate depictions of the intensity, the chaos and the brutality of war, especially as it was experienced on the 6th of June, 1944, D-Day, when the uh, largest uh, assault air, land and sea in history that was coordinated and combined, was brought to bear on one place, the beaches of Normandy, one of the bloodiest days in history. When that day was over, fully one half of those who were in the original assault lay dead or wounded on those beaches. Now, the, the movie itself, of course, picks up with that brutal day and then carries on to the, the seven days beyond that when a Captain John C. Miller receives new orders to take what is remaining of his squad, which is now about seven men, and they are to leave their current initiative and to go search for another depleted squad that includes one private James Ryan. Now, the reason for the mission? Well, Private Ryan had parachuted in with 101st Airborne the night before D-Day, was not at Omaha or Utah Beach, but his two older brothers were, and both perished. Now, Private Ryan actually had three brothers. There were four boys in that family. The younger brother had died already on the battlefield in New Guinea. So suddenly he had no brothers. And the Army Chief of Staff, George Marshall, felt that that was more than any one mother should have to contribute to the war effort. And he sent the orders that Private Ryan be located and taken out of harm's way. So Captain Miller takes his depleted group who endured the assault of that first day, and they began to search for Private Ryan. They know that he is part of a group that is going to attempt to secure a bridge for the Allies once they get past this, this original assault. But it's also very likely that the Nazis will overrun them, so they have the orders that if they do, they are to blow up the bridge and beat a hasty retreat if anybody's left. And so Miller's group begins searching for Private Ryan and this bridge, and, and they are very conflicted about this, that they are going to risk many lives for one life. And 
sure enough, before they connect with him, they've already lost two more men. And when they find him, he absolutely refuses to obey orders and to go with them out of harm's way. Finally, in exasperation, Captain Miller says, well, what would you have us tell your mother should you also die in battle and all her sons are gone? And he replies, tell her that I died standing with the only brothers I have left. I think she will understand. Finally, in exasperation, what do I do now with my depleted squad? Captain Miller decides they will join up with Ryan's group and they will fulfill their mission regarding the bridge. But he orders Private Ryan, as the ranking officer he is, to remain by his side. And so for the next seven days, the, the two depleted outfits um, conduct themselves heroically. But finally, they are simply overwhelmed by, by a massively superior uh, contingency of enemy troops. And so they are beating a hasty retreat, retreat and they are preparing to blow up the bridge. And unfortunately, you may remember that there was a faulty wiring in the, uh, the device. And Captain Miller, with, with Ryan at his side, is attempting to repair the wire. When, Army, when the Nazi tanks roll up. And Miller receives a fatal injury. Now, ironically enough, about this point, the U.S. troops arrive, Allied troops arrive. Uh, they, they cause the Nazis to scatter. But it is too late for Captain John C. Miller. And as he lay dying with Private Ryan by his side, he looks at him earnestly. And in his final words, he says, James... Earn this. Earn this. And now the scene fast forwards 50 years. The Normandy American Cemetery and a small family led by a white haired aging man are walking briskly, of course, across the vast lawn of the cemetery with thousands of crosses dotting the landscape and a few stars of David. And the old man suddenly spots his objective and he he goes as briskly as he can. His aging bones will allow him to go and he falls on his knees before the marker that reads Captain John C. Miller, June 13th, 1944. Tears begin to well up in his weathered eyes, face, and uh, he, he silently one more time thanks Captain Miller for his great sacrifice and he remembers the charge earn this and he thinks within himself again for the hundredth time how could anyone earn a gift at that high a price and finally he looks with with the appearance of desperation on his face to his wife who is standing by and he says as he has asked her before have I lived a good life have I? And she turns to his son and his daughter-in-law and two small grandchildren, and they gather around him. And she says, yes, you're a good man. You have lived a good life. Now, Chuck Colson, in commenting upon this, uh, this movie and on that scene in particular, says that you can play that out before any culture in the world 
they will instantly identify with that question. Have I lived a good life? And the pathos that lies behind it. Because we all desire to live well. And something instinctively within us at our better moments tells us that that involves taking the high road. The road less traveled. The road that Jesus calls the narrow way. That leads to life and is found by few. So what is the good life? And what would it look like to live it? Well, that is really the topic that Jesus addresses in this most famous and controversial sermon that we've been looking at the last few Sundays and will continue to do so for a couple of more weeks. The Sermon on the Mount is the most admired, in some cases vilified, in many cases misunderstood, in some cases looked at with maddening frustration as being impossible. That you can find anywhere. And that is especially true of the words that we're going to consider this morning. These are some of the toughest to understand. Let's read verses 31 through 48 of chapter 5. Jesus has already talked about anger. Contempt. That's what the raka fool thing is about. An excessive desire. And now... He addresses the issue of marriage and divorce. He said, as it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, remember, Jesus is in this. It's been said, but I say that's the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. This is the righteous standard I'm calling you to. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, don't swear at all. Either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this, many of us need to remember, comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So what is Jesus saying here about the good life and about what it looks like to live it? Well, there are a few things that we need to keep in perspective here to understand these words as Jesus intends them to be understood. So let's think about this a little bit. First of all, there is a tendency for us want to, to want to view the sayings of the, the Sermon on the Mount as a, a collection of, of proverbs or pithy sayings that we pick up one, in, one at a time like we might pick up a marble and we look at it and deal with it in isolation alone. But we need to understand that the, the Sermon on the Mount is a concrete, cohesive and comprehensive message from Jesus. Now, by concrete, that simply means that if you examine Jesus teaching in the New Testament, he never just gave information for information. He just never had a nice little theoretical talk. Jesus teachings are always very concrete. He gives principles. He illustrates them with parables and word pictures. But what he is talking about is 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 central to life. In fact, as we're learning in this sermon, he talks about the difficult and daunting circumstances of life. This is the stuff that soap operas come out of. It is concrete. So he evidently means what he says and intends that we embrace them. And by doing so, we embrace the good life. Now, his teachings are cohesive and comprehensive. And that simply means that they are to be considered together as a body of teaching and they are built on a common foundation. Now, to understand the foundation, you look at Matthew chapter 4. That's where Scott began with us, if you remember in this series. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes out of the wilderness where he has been tempted of the devil. And he comes through triumphantly, fortified by his intimate relationship with the Father. And that is an important principle to underline in everything that follows. It flows out of an intimate relationship with God. And then he begins to teach his core message. And what is the core message of Jesus? Repent. It's there in chapter four. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in that statement, Jesus delivers his core message and gives us the catchphrase of his ministry, which is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Matthew usually says kingdom of heaven like a really good Jew. He would not use the direct name of God frequently. Uh, Mark, James and John or Mark, uh, Luke and John uh, refer to the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. The catchphrase of the ministry of Jesus is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's used a hundred times in the New Testament. Jesus teaches on it frequently. He, he weaves many parables about it and he is constantly inviting us to enter the kingdom. So what is the kingdom? A kingdom is a sphere or a domain which has a king. His authority holds sway. What the king wants done gets done. And so the kingdom of God, that is the domain or the sphere where God is the authority. And what he wants done sooner or later will be done. 
So Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And what is he saying? Jesus is invading planet Earth to tell us that the God who rules over the heavens has drawn near to you and me. And he is making entrance into his kingdom imminently available to whosoever will. So what is the condition for entering the kingdom of God? What does Jesus say? He says, repent. Repentance is the key to entering the kingdom. The word repent uh, in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, is the word metanoia, which is two words. Noia means mind. We get knowledge from that. And meta means change. Radical change, like in metamorphosis. Jesus is saying, repent, change your way of thinking about yourself, about your life, about your sins, even about your virtues. And most of all, change your mind about who is going to be the reigning authority over your life. To repent and enter the kingdom of, of God is to exchange masters. I crawl off the throne of my life and I invite Jesus to be the ruling king of my life. That is entering the kingdom of God. Now, when we put that all together, we suddenly come to understand that Jesus is not giving us a disparate list of various laws that we are to obey, but we really know that we can't. So that either frustrates us or lets us off the hook. But rather, he is saying in the daunting challenges of life, submit yourself to my authority, live under my rule, abide in me, place your confidence in me. And over time, I will change your heart so that you may be the kind of person who will react in predictable ways that I have described in this passage in the daunting and difficult challenges of life. Now, see, that's what Pastor Scott was getting at last Sunday when he talked about stapling apples on barren trees, as opposed to letting your roots go down deep in Christ and letting him produce a healthy tree that will inevitably and invariably produce healthy fruit. And so Jesus says, keep on abiding in me and you will Bear much fruit. So life in the kingdom is living under the rule of Christ by the grace of Christ in constant communion with Christ. And he begins to work on our hearts so that we can respond in the ways that are listed in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let's quickly for a few moments, just look at some of those ways. What does it mean to have a kingdom heart and to live from it in in the tough challenges of life? Well, first of all, the area of marriage and divorce. Now, the old way of looking at things, Pharisee righteousness was to frame the question like this. What's acceptable and I can divorce my wife? What is the minimum standard of legal goodness where I can still be in charge and get out of this marriage when I don't enjoy it anymore. Now, that certainly reveals a certain kind of heart, doesn't it? And Moses said, the Mosaic law said divorce is only acceptable 
with marital infidelity. Now, it doesn't say you have to divorce the spouse if they are unfaithful, but that's the only acceptable standard. He goes on to talk about giving a bill of divorce. And in Matthew 19, when Jesus elaborates on his teaching on marriage, that's a good place to look if you want to look further into what Jesus is teaching. The, uh, the Pharisees kind of push him and they say, well, why did Moses allow a bill of divorce? Because they had come to the point to say, well, you know, bottom line is I can divorce my wife as long as I give her a legal statement that says you are divorced. Now, she can go out into a male dominated world and and have some rights, no, though not very many. And Jesus says the only standard is infidelity. And he says, why did Moses give give a bill of divorce? Because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, God understands the, the hurt and the meanness that human beings can inflict upon one another. And so Jesus says there are places where divorce becomes the only alternative, perhaps. But he goes on to describe his standard. Which Matthew 19, I would encourage you to read to go further with this. And he says, let's not look at this from the standpoint of what is the minimum standard that I can still be good and yet get rid of, uh, of an undesired marriage. Jesus says, look at God's standard for marriage. Second chapter of Genesis. God had created humankind and said it was good. And then he establishes the first institution in the Bible, which is what? It's marriage. He says, I'm going to I'm going to bless a man and a woman to enter into a union called marriage, which is the the deepest level of intimacy that is possible in human relationships. And I'm going to give the gift of sexual intimacy, which represents the fact that a man and a woman brought together under God are one flesh. And by the very de description of what it means to one flesh, that is for a lifetime. And when a man and woman enter into that kind of a relationship under God, that is the best human good news that you can possibly model before your world. Our culture needs marriages that model the biblical oneness principle. And we see so little of that these days that the model is lost and people have have have, have fallen for a, a, a lesser ideal for lack of models. So who will be the ones who will live under the, the authority of Christ with confidence in him, walking in union with him together? Who will honor the oneness principle and over time experience the joy and the good news of intimacy that is possible between one man, one woman committed to one another for a lifetime. That doesn't say anywhere that tough times don't come. But it does say that God is capable to mold that kind of a relationship even through those tough times. Now, when you see the biblical ideal that Jesus reinforces here in Matthew 19, you begin to understand why divorce is never really the will of God. You understand that that even in those rare cases where it becomes the lesser of evils, that irreparable harm is done. 
Divorce never occurs that scars do not appear that will remain there forever. Now, can God forgive? Yes. Because his mercy endures forever. Can God even lead a divorced person into a later relationship of marriage, which becomes like that godly ideal? Can he? Yes. His grace is so amazing. But bottom line, the very oneness principle, the kind of intimacy that God desires for a man and woman in marriage would call us to eschew divorce and to build a godly marriage. So how do we build marriages that are good news? Well, the principles are here, first of all and foremost. A couple must mutually submit to the authority of Jesus over their relationship, must place their confidence in him and must live in union with him. As we do that, and as we renew it every day, because the Bible says, as Paul said, I die daily. I have to die to self-rule of my life and live to Christ's rule of my life. It's a constant decision, as we learned from Dana this morning in Mike's. We have to yield to the Spirit's controlling influence every day. But when we do that, then the Spirit of God begins to work in us. And he begins to develop a kingdom heart in us. And we can view one another as we are viewed by Christ. So in your marriage relationship, as you struggle with the challenges that go along with close, close relationships, are you currently seeking together to submit to Christ? Secondly, you have already, as you walk with Christ, dealt with anger, contempt, And excessive desire issues. You see, Jesus puts this sermon together with a very definite progression. And the root cause of so much sin is anger, contempt, or excessive desire. So instead of anger in a marriage, you swap off anger for agape love. You see, Jesus is taking us from anger to agape love. If you looked at the last verse of this passage, he's taking us from the outhouse to the penthouse at this point in living the good life. And would you believe? Husbands, Ephesians 525 says what? Here is your primary guiding principle in your marriage. Husbands, agape your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, what is agape love? We just have love, you know, in the English language. I love pizza. I love baseball. I love apple pie and Chevrolet and my wife. And we just have one word. But there are actually four words in, in, in the Greek language for love. And the highest kind of love is agape. Love like the love of God. It is generous. It is open handed. It is sacrificial. It goes first. So who goes first in a marriage when there's conflict? Well, guys, you want to be the leader of your home? This is how you lead. You go first by exercising agape love. That's spiritual leadership in the home. Anger is replaced by agape. And secondly, contempt is replaced by respect. Ephesians says to wives, wives, 
respect, and that's the basic meaning of submit yourselves to, respect your husbands. You know, there's something about the male makeup that about the worst thing you can do to a male is, is display contempt toward them. But when you choose to give them gift of the, the gift of respect, you give a male an opportunity for life change. You say, well, I'm not sure he acts worthy of respect. Well, most of us don't at, at certain times. But this is where you, you live life in the kingdom and you, you model Jesus. You emulate Jesus here. And you remember, this is what Jesus for, is forever doing for us. He gives us a reputation to live up to. We're just like Simon Peter, who really was just Simon. And Jesus saw Simon and he said, hey, Simon, from now on, I'm going to call you Rocky. Peter, I'm going to give you a reputation to live up to. And I'm sure all the fellow disciples who knew Simon knew he was compulsive, impulsive, undependable, rushing in where angels fooled, uh, would, where fools would, where angels or whoever it is. Would re- <laughs> I'm getting to the thing that gets to me next. Where fools, angels fear to tread. Being foolish. Thank you. I finally got it right. And God said, I'm gonna, uh, Jesus said, I'm going to call you Rocky. He gave him a reputation to live up to, and he didn't live up to it right away. But he entered a journey where he became more and more like a rock. Wives, give your husband a reputation to live up to. Give him the opportunity for life change. An excessive desire together. Make your hunger and your thirst be for God. And for the righteousness that represents his heart. And the Beatitudes says that you would be filled when you hunger and thirst after God. Then you find the gifts of of proper intimacy in marriage and the ability to love and to respect your spouse. So be a person this morning who is a person of good news in your marriage relationship. Relate to your spouse out of a kingdom heart. Now, secondly... And we're out of time, so I'll do exactly what Jesus says about the second thing. He says when it comes to this matter of, of using words and, and, and making promises and statements you want people to believe, be very careful here. Use an economy of words. And the habit in that day was to, to swear by all kinds of oaths. We would say today to swear by all that's holy, though we don't even know what we mean by saying that. But they would swear by Abraham's beard and they would swear by God's throne and etc. Because that would lend impact to their words and make them credible. And the only requirement of the old law was that you tell the truth and you live up to it. Jesus says, don't do that stuff. Now, in our day, we would call that putting a shine on or or becoming spin doctors with our words. And we use extra words, you know, colorful adjectives and hyperbole and superlatives. And and we swear by all that's holy. And why do we do that? We do it as an instrument of manipulation and control where we get bypass people's wills. To get them to do what we want them to do. And so Jesus says, don't get into that stuff. You don't honor the dignity of human worth. And you don't build integrity in your own life. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. And forget all the other stuff. Be a person of your word. So for a lot of us, the next conversation we have, it's going to be about half of what it usually is. 
And that won't be a bad thing because now we can listen, really listen to people and become a person of our word. And then lastly, Jesus says. What does it mean to be a kingdom person when it comes to the area of injustice, injury and personal insult? Wow, this is a tough one. And this is right where we all live. We all have been dealt with unjustly. We have known personal insult and injury. How do we react? Now, the old old law was eye for eye and tooth for tooth, right? And we kind of look at that as pretty brutal, but actually it was a step forward in civilization. Because what this said is if somebody breaks your arm, you can't break both arms and kick them in the groin, you know, and, and, and think that was okay and justified. In other words, this is the principle of Western law, which, you know, which says the punishment should fit the crime. But Jesus says, I say to you. Change your way of thinking about how you respond to injustice, insult and bodily harm. You know, if somebody tells you because they are a person of authority and they can force you to go a mile and helping them carry a load, you don't go 5,280 feet and then drop the load on their feet. That's not the principle that would reflect kingdom hearts. You see, at this point, you submit to the rule of Christ. You're dealing with anger. You're dealing with contempt. And you're dealing with excessive desire, which in this case is the desire for revenge and retaliation. And you have a bigger picture of life because you abide in Christ. You see a God who who rises above these things, who is a God who loves you with an everlasting, unconditional love. He is a God of justice and he knows how to right wrongs in his timing and his ways. And you're freed up where your life doesn't have to look like your latest injustice or injury. And you don't have to have. People like you and be fair to you all the time to feel your own self-worth. Your worth is in Christ. You have a God-sized view of life that rises above unjust circumstances. And you have a God-shaped view of people, which understands that we are loved by a father, even though none of us deserves it. And that every person you meet, even that person who would be happy if you were dead, is made in the image of God and is lovingly pursued by your father. You can begin to view things through heaven's point of view. And actually come to the point where you can love your enemies. And you see, now we have reached the penthouse. The word perfect here is the word teleos in Greek, which has to do with fulfillment or completeness. And and we are fulfilled in Christ when we reach the standard that we walk with him and his love begins to flow outwardly through us. And so the day may even come that we can pray as Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them. For in very significant kinds of ways, they don't know what they are doing. You know, Jesus had so walked with his father that it would have been harder for him to say, Father, curse them than to pray, forgive them from the cross. Is that possible for kingdom persons who walk with God? This this month, I've been in the book of Acts and my journaling and my reading. And just a few days ago, I, I read the story of Stephen. It appears for two brief chapters in the Bible. And he was what we call one of the seven 
which we often think is the prototypes of deacons and churches today. Uh, his job was to meet the um, the needs of the congregation that the 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 apostles might uh, focus on prayer, and the ministry of the word. Now, any any devoted Christ follower will never be just satisfied with taking care of our own and uh, we find Stephen out there in the marketplace sharing the good news of Jesus with those who weren't part of the kingdom. And the Bible says that, Jesus, that uh, Stephen was a good man, filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with faith and wisdom. In other words, he was yielding to Christ, rule over his life, and Jesus' spirit was building faith and wisdom into his life. And Stephen's faithful witness results in his death. You read of his death in the end of chapter 7 of Acts, where literally some people become murderously angry and drag him out of the city gates and stone him to death. And Acts records the two dying words of, of, of Stephen. The last one was this. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This man had walked with God to the point that it would have been harder for him at the moment of his execution to wish revenge upon them than to pray for God's forgiveness, just like the Jesus he served. Now, the thing he said right before that, as the stones were about to rain down upon him, he said, look, I see the heavens opened and I see the son of God standing at the right hand of the father. Now, in the Bible, we know that the right hand of the Father is always the place of all authority and power. That's its meaning in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. We also know that when Jesus went to the cross, then rose from the grave, and then ascended back to heaven, where did he go? Went to the right hand of the Father, and what did he do? He sat down. Now, the fact that he sat down at the right hand of the Father indicates that his work was done, mission accomplished. And now he is sitting there ready to receive our, our prayers and intercede on our behalf. Stephen says, I see him standing. What do you think was happening? I'll tell you what I think was happening based on other scriptures. I think the Son of God, the Savior of Stephen was getting ready to welcome him into his full life in, the, in, in his eternal world. And he was standing and he was giving the applause of heaven that says, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome home. One of the people who was there that day was a young man named Saul who was who was participating in the execution of Stephen. And, and Stephen's words and responses, first of all, led to Saul becoming murderously angry. But then Saul encounters Jesus. And he enters life in the kingdom. And he lives under the rule of God, by the grace of God, in relationship to God. And when he comes to the end of his life, he is in prison. And he is about to be executed. And he writes his very last letter, his very last chapter, Second Timothy. And he says, you know, I'm about to die. I have run the race. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And the Lord, the righteous judge, is ready to present to me a crown that he will give to all who love him. And I just know Stephen was remembering years before, or Paul was remembering years before 
when, when he heard Stephen die triumphantly and have a vision of Christ welcoming him. I want to be a person who lives my life in his strength in such a way that Jesus will stand. How about you? Repent. Change masters. Daily live under his authority with confidence in him in an obedient love relationship with him, allowing him over time to give you a kingdom heart where you can respond in the kinds of ways that are listed in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this morning, as we move to the conclusion of, of our time, one of the things that happens in our offering time is you have a chance to give, which is an act of worship. You have a chance to respond on that connection card to opportunities to follow Christ. It is a time of reflection. You can ask for prayer. You can identify what the Spirit of God is saying you, to you in this service today. And you can register a response. And I want to invite you to do that. I'm going to pray. And following that prayer, we're going to ask our ushers to come. And they're going, we're going to participate in the act of giving. Use that card wisely and well. And you know there are always those of us who stand around who would be glad to speak with you afterward. Is there something that you would like to uh, visit with one of us about regarding your response to worship in the Word today? Let's pray. Father, it's all about you. And I thank you that you love us so much. You take the initiative and you call us into a life in which we live in submission to you. We put our absolute confidence in you. And we remain in, in a relationship with you, allowing you to do your work of changing our hearts that we may respond in ways that cause us to live the good life, the life to which you have called us. We know that begins by putting our trust in you. Now, Father, just uh, speak into each of our lives and prompt us as how we can say yes to you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.